Well, it's no surprise to Christians that our culture has a growing hostility towards biblical Christianity. Historic biblical Christianity, orthodox Christianity, is being scrubbed from the pages of American life. Then all the efforts to subvert and remove Christianity from the moral and political, one of the things these revolutionaries are unable to do is to remove Christianity from everyday language. Pick up a newspaper or read an online article and you will most likely find Christian loan words. You'll read words like saved, mercy, grace, atoned. Will he save his career? Has she done enough to atone for her mistakes? Will the American people have mercy on immigrants? Perhaps these are used by their authors unintentionally and unknowingly. But one cannot get away, however, however hard they try, however hard they seek to kind of scrub the dirt of Christianity, if you will, out of everyday life. It shows up again and again. You see, the cross of Christ had such an impact on humanity that humanity has for 2,000 years sought to scrub her out of its books. You know, it's so funny, I, I joke and often sadly reflect, Americans that get all antsy about this world getting worse and things getting really, really bad often are the same folks that do not understand history. Just this past week, I was helping my seven-year-old study history, American history. And in American history in the 1700s, she was learning about at the little second grade level there. And I began to pause and think about how bad things were and, and how progressively things were going to get in the American colonies. Started off well, all in the right spirit, but how quickly it turned, how quickly greed turned into slavery, how, how quickly the, 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 the pursuit of freedom turned into enslaving an entire people, all in the name of economic growth. So often. People seek to run from the cross, run from words of the cross, words like atonement, words like mercy and grace. They want a cross, but they want to devalue the meaning of the cross. You see, the cross of Christ is what gives these words their meaning and what even in the a progressive secular culture seeks to undermine. One might try to rid the cross from everyday life. But friends, as you know, as Christians, it always shines through. You see, it was the Christians in England, for example, who were so bold to stand up against the government while all the other Christians were running around celebrating slavery. It was men like William Wilberforce who stood up and said, no, the Bible actually condemns that as evil. You see, Christians who seek to follow Christ faithfully have always been a voice while the culture seeks to scrub us out. 
Because you see, the way the Bible reads is that Jesus isn't defeated. This world won't defeat Jesus. Rather, Jesus defeated the prince of the power of the air on the cross of Calvary. See, as Christians, we got to make sure we understand who is the Lord of Lords, who is the King of Kings. And so, a secular society would read John chapter nineteen as as utter defeat and failure. It reads as if it's a sad tragedy to a good life. But we know that through the death of Christ, Jesus. God, through Jesus, accomplished eternal life. So this morning, I want us to think here in John chapter 19, very long chapter. We're not going to get into all the little details of it. Kind of look at it from a 30,000 foot view. You have nothing going on this afternoon but to enjoy the sunshine. Spend it reading John chapter 19. More than that, read the whole book. It will be fruitful to you. Just a bit of context, you'll be reminded last week we were in chapter 18. And in John chapter 18, we we studied the arrest of Jesus. Jesus had been betrayed by one of his devout followers, Judas, the guy who carried the money, right? You know, probably respected. You don't just give money to people you don't respect. The leader among leaders, and he betrays Jesus. Jesus went on trial in a Jewish trial. He went before the high priest, uh, Caiaphas and, and Annas. He went before Pilate, where Pilate was really not sure what to do with Jesus. And even today, still kind of, what do I do with this Jesus guy? He seems to be innocent. And so both trials. And throughout that, we saw that John had purposely sort of laid the groundwork, that everything that John has included in these chapters is here to to move forward a particular point. And that particular point comes at the end of chapter 20. It's the whole point of the whole letter. The whole reason the Spirit inspired John to write. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you, you, friend, you, believer, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So with that purpose in mind, have that in your mind as you consider John chapter 19. That that John is not merely recording and communicating historic fact. Don't read this like it's yesterday's news. But read it with those theological lenses that John gives you that this has been written down to strengthen your faith, believer, and to give you faith, unbeliever. That John is writing this that you might believe in him today and believe for eternal life. So I invite you to turn to John 19 if you've not already. As I said, it's 42 verses. And to aid you, and I don't want to put you to sleep right here at the get-go, um, I'm going to just read a portion of this, and we'll, we'll consider other aspects of it as we go along. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, 
I bring him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He enters his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it was given, had been given from you to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone's Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Friends, that short beginning sums up quite well the whole chapter. The great exchange. An innocent man. Unjustly found guilty and sentenced to death. All because God's people were so in love with the world in which they found themselves. They couldn't find themselves. Couldn't come to submitting to a heavenly king. The point of John chapter 19 could be summarized in this way. That Jesus, the innocent Passover lamb, died the death you deserved. And that I deserved. That we all deserve. We deserve what Jesus endured. But he did that with a purpose. So that those who believe in him might have eternal life. Jesus died in your place. In my place. We want to consider John chapter 19 from that perspective. For us to see the cross with awe and worship. As the eternal son of God fully and finally defeat sin and Satan. Initial belief and ongoing belief are the aim of this chapter. Just very quickly, John gives us a bit of a clue of his point of this whole chapter in verse 35. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn there. It's a little clue. It's where I'm going, where I'm getting this from. Verse 35, as as everything sort of wraps up, we're taking Jesus down off the cross, about to prepare him for burial John makes this editorial comment. As he sees Jesus dead, hanging, lifeless on the cross, a soldier comes by and thrusts a spear into his side, for which blood and water begin to pour out from his wound. And John is just an eyes gaze away. And he says this. 
He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. You see it? That you also may believe. John says, my eyewitness account was for you. 2,000 years ago, John wrote this down for you today. That you might see and believe that Jesus died for you. In order to further our belief this morning that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I want us to sort of put forward two main facts I want us to consider just in our minds this morning. So if you take notes, there's really two main points that I want us to consider. Summarized first, that Jesus died as the innocent Passover lamb. I hope you heard John give you some interpretive clues when I read a minute ago. He gave you facts that you didn't need unless they were of theological importance. Unless they were clues to help you understand the point. You didn't need to know it was the Passover, did you? Well, what significance would have that really brought if this was merely just communicating historic fact? If this is, again, just yesterday's news? Oh, perhaps other than orienting it, I guess so we know when to celebrate Easter. Not at all. Jesus, or John rather, is making a very emphatic claim on what Jesus is about to endure and the role that Jesus is to play. Throughout this very opening verses, you saw the emphasis, Jesus is innocent, Jesus is innocent, Jesus is innocent. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And then John throws this out. Hey, by the way, it was the day of Passover, and it happened to be about the sixth hour, just moments before they sacrificed the Passover lambs. And so John wants us to understand in verses 1 through 16 that Jesus is dying as the innocent Passover lamb. And if you're like, I have no idea what that means, that's what we want to think about. Secondly, in verses 17 through 42, John forwards this point that I kind of just pointed out in verse 35, that Jesus died the death our sin deserves. So we understand that Jesus is dying for a particular people, for those who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Jesus is hanging, bleeding in your place. He faced death so that you would not have to. So these are the two points that we want to consider. First, Jesus died as the innocent Passover lamb. Again, as I said, we can't get into all the really good nitty-gritty details of the text, but, but I wanted you to see, as I read, again and again, the emphasis that, that is being placed on Jesus' innocence. So in verses 1 through 7, here at the beginning, you'll see this sort of emphasis that John is taking. Now, friend, remember, there was a lot of conversations that took place that day, Right? Uh, surely Pilate said more than what he did. And as you look at the other gospel writers, he did say more. But John has chosen particular statements that, that Pilate made in order for you as the reader to be convinced that Jesus is the innocent Lamb of God. Notice here the continual mockery that they've mocked Jesus. This is that theme we considered last week. We, we won't pick it up too much today, but, but Pilate here is mocking not only Jesus, but the Jews, right? Jesus is being 
arrayed with a purple robe and a crown of thorns in order to kind of visibly display mockery towards Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be a king and Pilate's putting him in his proverbial place. Not only that, he's putting the Jews in their place by demonstrating that he alone has the authority to execute Jesus. But John here includes some fascinating phrases that, Jesus, that Pilate makes concerning Jesus. Look there at verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to him, See, I bring him out to you that you may know the purpose, purpose statement, that I find no guilt in him. And so he's, he's again putting forward this idea, I find no guilt in him. Then look, verse 6, the end of verse 6, he says it again. Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And so Pilate here, again and again, is emphasizing the innocence of Jesus, which will help us understand why John makes the statement about the Passover. In other words, John knows you've read the beginning of this book. And in John chapter 2, uh, when another John, by, by the name of John the Baptist, was beginning his ministry and he saw Jesus, he declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Well, where did he get this language from? Why this emphasis on the Passover, the Passover Lamb? Well, they're getting it from the Old Testament. In particularly, God's rescue of the Old Testament Israelites from slavery in Egypt. They had been enslaved for 400 years, and God, through Moses, delivered them. And, and on their final day in Egypt, he enacted the Passover celebration they were commanded to take lambs that were spotless and innocent and sacrifice them. That is, chop them up, bloody mess, to take the blood and to paint it on the doorpost of their houses. And that when the death angel went out, he would pass over the house. Hence the name Passover. And so this, this festival or, or uh, party, if you will, is th this Passover season was to be a continual reminder to the people of God that God was their only Savior. And that God would save through the death of another. You see, the theme of the Old Testament sacrificial system is one of substitution. Something dies in order for sin to be covered. We studied in Genesis chapter 3, for example, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That, that when Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and ashamed of their nakedness, what did God do? He clothed them, not with fig leaves, not with, um, you know, foliage, but he, he, he clothed them through the death of an animal. An animal skin was used to cover their shame. And that was sort of, sort of that first breadcrumb that God was laying out that he ultimately would forgive sin, cover our shame through the death of another. Not a spotless lamb, not a, not a little lamb, but the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so John here, in our minds, as we see this back and forth, almost a cosmic power struggle between the Jews and Pilate and the Roman government, stands Jesus, who declares his authority over all of this. Notice here at the end, verse 11, or verse 10, rather, Pilate says to him, 
Hey, Jesus, do you not know who you're talking to? Son, do you not understand that I have authority to execute you right on the spot? <laughs> Just imagine the, the immense irony of this whole thing. Jesus is like, hey, do you not realize that I made you? That I formed you? That I created the breath you're using? The, 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 the sweat that's coming down your face? The, the strength that you are going to use to execute you? I made all of this? I planned all of this with my father. We purposed this from eternity past. No, no. He says, look at verse 11. You have, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus makes emphatically clear that he is a willing sacrifice who has come to fulfill the father's purposes. As the author of Hebrews says, for it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstayed, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus points out those who deliver Jesus, the Jews, Judas, they're the ones with the, that bear the greater responsibility. Not that Pilate was innocent. No, this is tragic on, on Pilate's part. He's a, he's a real pitiful kind of guy. He, he's the kind of guy you don't invite over to Thanksgiving dinner, right? He, he's the guy who you don't want your daughters hanging out with. Um, he's a questionable character. He, sends an, he affirms the innocence of Jesus, yet willingly executes him to expedite this sort of heightened situation. And so John here assures us that Jesus has authority to do what he's about to do. You, you, sent, you get the sense of that? In other words, Jesus is the only one authorized to die as the sacrifice to forgive sin. Finally, in this particular section, in verses 12 through 18, we see that the Jews reject their heavenly king. What was meant to be a derision, mockery of Jesus was true, wasn't it? He was king. He is the king of kings. He is the great high and lifted one, up one. He, he is the one, but, but such, such was the people of God, wasn't it? I can't help when I read John chapter 19 to not see a, a glimmer of 1 Samuel 8. When God's people had been rescued from slavery and kind of set up life in the promised land, they began to look around the world and say, man, I, we wish we could be like the world. And, and ultimately, they rejected God as king and they set up their own king. And it was a disastrous, miserable failure. But such was the people of God continually rejecting God as their king. And we see this. Such that they'll even declare that Caesar is their king. We have no king but Caesar. Full rejection of the heaven sent king. The one who came and died. A number of points of application for us this morning as we consider this. Is the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe that there, are, there is only one way to relationship with, with God. And that is through the death of Jesus. It is not through our good deeds. 
It's not through how much money we give. It's not through how often we attend church, how often we pray, how good we are. We believe the only way to have a relationship with the eternal God, the creator, is through the death of Jesus Christ by believing that he died as the Lamb of God for our sin. By trusting that his death satisfies the Father's wrath. More than that, we affirm the sovereignty of God in salvation. We believe, as Paul writes to the church in Rome, that Jesus Christ died for those who would believe in him. We believe and affirm that Jesus Christ dies for his people. As all throughout the Gospel of John, he's affirmed, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The question for you, the question for me, is how often we're more like the Jews in this story than anyone. Accepting some immediate temporary allegiance in order to make life more comfortable. Rather than the hard work of believing and submitting to our heavenly king. From this morning, we need to understand, you need to understand, that Jesus Christ is the creator God. John has made that very clear from the beginning. And that all those who do not believe in him will face eternal life without him. Friends, it's simple as submitting your life to him by by saying Jesus is king, not me. As the hymn writer captures so well for us, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full redemption can it be, hallelujah, what a savior. You see, coming to the cross of Christ is coming to the end of you. It's coming to the realization that you are guilty, that you are vile, and that you are helpless. It's who we are. It sums up quite vividly. And as Christians, you need to hear that. Friend, that's not a message for unbelievers. That's just as much a message for Christians. Friend, you don't have your life together, and it's okay. You've got to remind yourself of that. You've got to remind yourself that you are guilty, that you did not merit God's love, that you did not earn God's love, that you, you didn't deserve to be saved. But by grace alone, through faith alone, he saved you. And friend, that should seek to, to give you strength, that you are helpless. How often as Christians we forget how helpless we were and still are apart from God. Full redemption, can it be? I love that. You know, how true it is. We doubt full redemption. Other religions seek to distort this one particular point. In one particular group of so-called Christians, each week when they partake of communion, they believe they re-sacrifice Jesus. 
They believe that the broken bread and the the wine and the cup is literally the body and blood of Jesus. Friends, we believe in a once for all, a full redemption. One that's completed past, present, and future. One in which we can have full assurance today, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus Christ paid it all. And we mean all. We mean even the worst. Our Savior didn't die because of some tragic accident, but rather as the perfect, He gave His perfect sinless life to be a sacrifice to rescue God's people. Well, let's consider this second point. Verses 17 through 42. Jesus died the death our sins deserve. Now, I've already alluded to this, and you can't really escape the conversation about sin. I mentioned this last week. I'll, I'll mention it in passing. I do this because perhaps you're frustrated that you don't have more details. You know, we live in a 3D world, uh, high definition, right? We live in a world that's, that, you know, we're always creating new TVs that are, that are clearer, more crisp, that has more pixels we can really see, um, right? And who wouldn't want smell of vision right? We all want that. We all want to immerse ourselves in experience. And we want, every, we want all the details. And so often we come to the Bible and that's what we do. We're like, man, give us all the details. I want to see the blood. I want to feel it. I want, to, I want it slashed you know, up in my... No, that's not the point, okay? The, the point isn't that, that what you come away with is some emotional experience where you just watch like an MMA fight and there's blood everywhere and broken bones. That's not the picture that the gospel writers have for us this morning. They have a realistic picture of a murder of a man who is innocent, an execution, a capital execution of the, of the most heinous kind, one in which no one even talked about, one in which, you know, Christians today wear those little cute little crosses around that. No one would have done that in the first century. No one would have done that. It was, it was something that was not talked about. It was so bad and so heinous. But yet, something that we celebrate. We celebrate it because Jesus died in our place. A part of the sacrificial system that we alluded to was that atonement was complete. Atonement, the word at one, to set at one. And the idea of the cross of Christ is that Jesus is satisfying the wrath of God and atoning for your sins. He is bearing the wrath that your sin deserves, that my sin deserves. This is why we believe in a literal place called hell. Hell is a place where people who have rejected God go, where God pours out his wrath upon them for all of eternity. As Christians, we affirm that God is a just judge, that he judges sin That he does not let sin go, but deals with sin, our sin, in the cross of Christ. Such that Jesus satisfies all of the Father's wrath. We see in verses 17 through 22 the details of the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus was led outside of the city and hung upon a Roman cross. Nailed to that cross. 
We see that the, that the guards mocked Jesus along the way. Pilate even putting the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, as a sort of just sort of stick it to the Jews kind of statement. Jesus being crucified, innocent, found guilty. And we see as John records the events, he, he doesn't go into all the, the sort of gory details, but focuses on the, the facts that, that Jesus could not have planned this. In other words, Jesus couldn't have orchestrated while he's hanging up on the cross. Oh, wow, I hope those Roman soldiers down there, you know, barter for my clothes. Rather, we are to understand that this is all a part of God's predestined plan, God's eternal plan, and it's all unfolding before our eyes. That God is in control and that Jesus is dying to fulfill God's eternal plan. You might have heard maybe some atheists or some non-believers say, oh, Jesus, just, he knew his Old Testament, and so he just, you know, he did things to, to, to make it look like he fulfilled the scriptures. No, that's illogical. A man dying on a cross isn't so worried about what his clothes are. He's naked. He doesn't care. But we see that these things are, are happening. So John here cites in verse 24, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Citing Psalm 22, verse 19. Or in verse 28, we see John again citing this. When Jesus said, I thirst, it was to fulfill Scripture. Psalm 69, verse 21. Or as Jesus would say, for the Son of Man goes, it is determined. But woe to that man to whom... He is betrayed. Or, or Peter, in that first sermon in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Friend, what John wants you to believe in is that Jesus' death was God's eternal rescue plan. It's the only rescue plan. There, there wasn't a plan B. Jesus isn't plan B. He, he is the only plan. He was the plan from the very beginning, before God formed that first molecule, before he spoke into existence, the very foundation of the cosmos, God, the eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit, purposed and planned to send Jesus Christ to die the death that your sin deserved. And more than that, as we see in verses 28 through 30, Jesus completed his mission. Look with me there at verse 28. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Time has gone by. And he cries out. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, was all complete, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on, on a hyssop branch and held it out to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Even in his death, we see Jesus was in control. No one took Jesus' life, did they? Jesus gave up his life. You see, Pilate thought he was in control. The Romans thought they were in control. The Jews thought they were in control. But all along, Jesus was in control. Jesus was dying a particular death for a particular purpose. Three times there, John emphasizes finished, fulfilled, 
and finished. Complete, fulfilled, completed. An emphasis that Jesus' mission, that he had come to do the Father's will, to die in the place of sinners, to, to be the good shepherd who would lay down his life. Jesus says, it is finished. It is complete. To tell us it's finished in full. There's nothing remaining. As Jesus would say in John chapter 17, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus came to, to complete the Father's will, to do the Father's work, and he finished it. You see, that's meant to give us faith this morning. There's not work yet undone. It's, it's a finished work. It's a completed work. It's not an ongoing work. It's not something that we await in the future. No, it is fully and finally finished. And now all we wait for is for Jesus to end this world and to come again and reign for glory. If we were to look at the history of the world on a, on a timeline, since Jesus Christ died and rose again, we have been on the precipice of the end of times. People always ask me, are we in the end of times? Friends, we have been on the end of times since Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's what the Bible says. That's how the apostles taught. That's how Paul taught. That the end of world is here. That the end is, is but near. And the point we need to come away with is to see that Jesus accomplished his people's rescue. You know, fascinatingly, some of the details that John includes here in this is meant to forward some of these ideas. Look with me at this side-pierced section, beginning in verse 31. You consider, okay, it's the day of preparation. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. Again, you see John's little clue about the Passover here in regards to the highest Passover. The, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and then they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the others who had been crucified with them. They did this so that uh, a lot of times they would stand on their feet. And when they broke the legs, they would basically um, be unable to breathe. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. This was perhaps to, you know, see if he flinched or something. Maybe he, you know, maybe he had passed out, but was still, there were still nerve, uh, nerves going on. And so that would have revealed that he was still alive. But, but John here is emphasizing the truth that Jesus is dead. That Jesus died. More than that, he goes on in verses 38 through 42 to describe the burial of Jesus. If Jesus wasn't really dead, right, they wouldn't have wrapped him up, right? He would have responded to that. Time had gone on. And, and so if he had just merely passed out from the excruciating pain of the, uh, of the cross, then he would have made it awaken. But, but John here is telling us these events, including these details, to demonstrate to us as the reader that Jesus was really dead. That this was no mere magic trick or sleight of hand. That the blood of Jesus stopped pumping. His heart stopped beating. Jesus was dead. I want you to think about for that for just a moment. He was dead. He was lifeless. The light of the light of men was dead. 
the one who spoke life into existence was dead. At funerals, I often make a statement that the person is now dead. I do this not to be gruesome or cold, but because so often in our society, we try to comfort ourselves by saying things like, oh, they're in a better place now, or their spirit still lives with me, or things of that nature. And we do that unhelpfully to ourselves when the reality is the person's dead. And there should be a sense of awe and shock from that. And John wants you to come away with that same truth this morning. He wants you to be sorrowful over your sin. He wants you to come to a reality point that that sin that you love so much cost Jesus his life. That those fleeting pleasures that you enjoy on a daily and even weekly, monthly, yearly basis, just those little things you know you keep to yourself, kind of hold on. Jesus is lifeless because of that. What does it mean for us today that it is finished? Well, friends, it means there's nothing for us to do. There's no to-do list on your phone to check off. There's no list on the refrigerator at home. No reminders that you need to, to, to attend to. Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. It's all. It's done. It's finished. Clearly, we have a responsibility in following Jesus. Clearly, we have work to do, but not work to earn our salvation, not work to merit our salvation, not not work to somehow impress God that he might love us and answer. No amount of good deeds done in the flesh will ever, ever merit God's love for you. God ain't... Friend, the first step is back to James chapter 4. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. You see, the first step to the gospel of Jesus Christ is recognizing that you're not all that great. That you're really not all that impressive. That God didn't save you because, man, I really need him or her in my family. Not at all. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians that that God chose what is lowly and despised in the world in order to shame the strong and shame the powerful. A little dose of reality check for us this morning, is it not? No. You see, God's love for you is a finished work. It's a completed work. The death of Christ has merited an eternal love of God for you in Christ forever. It won't ever wear out. It won't ever dry up. It won't ever end. God's love for you. God's not going to wake up one day in eternity future, some trillion years from now, and say, you know, I'm kind of done with this whole thing, uh, and away with you. No, rather, Jesus' death merits God's eternal love. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a saying. See, Jesus died because, not because he deserved it. Not because he had done anything wrong. Rather, he died in the place of sinners. He died the death your sin deserveth. 
He was the innocent Passover lamb. And I hope this morning that, that as you stare to the cross, as you think about John 18, as you think about Jesus dying, hanging there, suspended between heaven and, and earth for your sins, as you, as you see, as Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that all those who would look to him might be saved. Friend, look to Jesus today. Trust in the finished work of Christ today. Trust that God loves you today, that he wants you to be in a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Give up your life. It isn't that great. It isn't that wonderful. I know you might think it is. I know, I know you're real impressed with the life you put together for yourself. But friend, God's not impressed with it. And you shouldn't be either. But you should look to Jesus. Because his life was perfect. He was the sinless son of God who died for sinners like you. That great hymn ends in this way. When he comes, our glorious king, to his kingdom, us to bring. Then anew, this song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Friend, you're never going to get over the cross. For all of eternity, we'll be singing about the cross. And let us spend today and the next living in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.